How do you start early in preparing for your medical school application? What is the best thing about first year medical school? What are some different interest groups you can get involved with? Today on Talking Admissions and Med Student Life, I interview Matthew, a current first year medical student here at the University of Utah School of Medicine. Helping you prepare for one of the most rewarding careers in the world. This is Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with your host, the Dean of Admissions at the University of Utah School of Medicine, Dr. Benjamin Chan. All right, welcome to another edition of Talking Admissions and Med Student Life. Got a great guest today, Matt. Um, a current first-year medical student who That's just right. finished a big test. That is right. What was the test in? It was in molecule cells and cancer. It was our final exam. Wow. So how'd it go? It went well. It went well. It was a great unit, and I feel like we were really prepared mm-hmm. for what was coming. Uh, you know, it was still long. There were still 120 questions. It's still That's a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> it still stretched my brain a little bit, okay. but right. phenomenal unit. And now you're on spring break, correct? Yes. And we were just saying before I turned on the podcast that uh, – uh, like I, did, I, I didn't even realize med students had a spring break. So cool. So what are you going to be doing? Kind of a nice surprise. Yeah, I'm headed out to San Francisco okay. to go visit a friend out there and uh, stay for half the week and relax and not think about school for a minute. Yeah, that's great. And then what do, you, what do you do when you come back? What's the next unit? And then we come back and jump into an eight-week unit called Host and Defense. Okay, very so cool. So talking about the immune system and inflammation and repair. All right. Well, let's start back at the beginning, Matt. So, um, you know, to all the listeners out there, how what is the best way to prepare for your application at med school? Obviously, you got in. So I, I think that <laughs> makes you an expert on some level. So what did you do? What, what are some tips for all those out there? That's a great question. So I think the, the best tip that I can give is start early. Mm-hmm. And people told me that again and again and again and again. And I thought, I know, I know, I know, start early. Uh, and I did start early. I would have started even earlier had I heeded their advice, mm-hmm. even just writing, writing your admissions essays, practicing writing, mm-hmm. um, compiling your stuff, write down your experiences, write down short blurbs about your experiences, because that's exactly what you're going to have to do. Mm-hmm. So I would say first bit of advice would be to start early. When did you start? So I started, um, I took, I was a little bit unique. I took a year and a half off between when I graduated and when I started medical school. So I started within that year and a half, maybe a little under a year before I started. Okay. Um, and what, did you, what kind of things did you start? I started by writing. I knew okay. roughly what would come up. I knew mm-hmm. roughly what the essays would be. I knew I'd have to do a personal statement. So I started writing that. And then I started compiling everything I had ever done mm-hmm. and finding dates and finding you know, things that I had almost forgotten that I had done freshman year of college. <laughs> okay. And this is up at Utah State, right? Yeah. You're an Aggie. You were running around Logan. Go right. Big Blue. Yeah. What were some of the things that you were doing up there? So when I was up in, at Logan, I volunteered at Logan Regional Hospital, okay. um, volunteered in the OR, and I also volunteered for hospice mm-hmm. uh, and volunteered at the Intermountain Healthcare Free Clinic, which was actually that of, – of all those three things, what I expected to be my favorite was the OR. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, this is awesome. I'll get to wear scrubs. I get to see all this stuff and there's blood. And it actually turned out that the free clinic was my favorite. It was very – it was all primary care. Mm-hmm. It was for – only for people who didn't have insurance. And I learned the most about patient interaction. I learned the most about medicine. Is that why it was your favorite? I think so, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I learned less from the OR. I learned a lot. And it was a really interesting experience, but I learned less from that experience. Okay. So you're practicing your essays, you're volunteering. You're, right. Were you working with the pre-med office up there at Utah State? I was. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Good old Yvonne and Andy. Or yes. Dr. Anderson and Dr. Kobe. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Okay. That's right. They both helped guide me through. Okay. Excellent. And so what did you do for your year off? What were you up to? I actually were worked. You're in a year and a half off. I yes. Yeah. I, I actually worked for a healthcare consulting firm called Levitt Partners okay. uh, here in downtown Salt Lake. Also offices in Chicago and D.C. 
and uh, was an analyst for them mm-hmm. for that time. And is that something that you just kind of fell into, or how did you find that after graduation? Yeah, so I knew – that's a great question. I knew I wanted to take some time off. I knew I wanted that time to work and get some experience. And early on in my undergrad, I thought, what a great opportunity for me if I could find a – a political internship, something that dealt with the po- political side of medicine. Cause that's an, that's an area that I identified as a weakness during my undergrad. Mm-hmm. I knew Medicaid and Medicare were both words. Mm-hmm. I knew they were both programs. They're I, very knew they were, <laughs> right? yeah, yeah. I knew people were fighting about them, but yeah. I had no idea what they entailed. I had no idea what they meant. So I knew that was a weak point. And I knew, you know, healthcare reform roughly was this kind of peripheral mm-hmm. thing in my life. So I thought, why don't I try that? And I applied for a few in D.C. and kind of here and there and found the opportunity at Levitt Partners uh, working for former Governor Levitt, former Secretary of Health and Human Services, Mike excellent. Levitt. And he started this this little consulting firm and it turned out to be an excellent opportunity. So what is a consulting firm? Because I think, like, you know, that word gets bandied around a lot. And, <laughs> I mean, do you just walk in and there's just like these reams and reams of like paper at your desk and you have to go through and, and crunch and crunch it, literally crunch it, you know, get a calculator? I mean, what does that mean? What does yeah. that look like? Yeah. So I was an analyst. So there was a lot of crunching numbers and crunching data, uh, actually a, a substantial amount of writing, uh, which really helped me getting some professional publications out there. We were pretty unique. We're, it's a small business, so they're under 50 employees. Now I think they're probably 75, but when I joined, they were under 50. And we would consult across the board. So we had healthcare providers that would come to us. We mm-hmm. had payers. We had large healthcare systems. We had government entities. We had pharmaceutical companies, all that would come and say, basically, what do we do? Mm-hmm. You know, here here's Obamacare, here's the ACA, the, you know... Affordable Care Act. Afford, yeah, yeah, Affordable Care Act. And they would say, we want to know what to do about this portion of it. How can you help us save money in this area? Okay. You know, how, how can we craft our um, quality metrics, right? That's a huge part of the ACA now that hospitals are measuring these quality metrics and they'd say they'd come in and say how can how can we craft these what's the best way to do these and we would kind of crunch through data and help them figure that out so what was your area of expertise or your area that you were mainly consulting in Mm -hmm. i worked mostly in the transition to value-based care and quality metrics Mm -hmm. metrics so i was in charge of certain geographic regions and we would work with the hospital systems there uh, we would call and do interviews. We did a ton of interviews with um, ACOs mm-hmm. or accountable care organizations. And these are organizations that are um, voluntarily implementing quality metrics and taking steps mm-hmm. to transition to value-based care. So we would jump on the phone with them and interview them. That was a huge part of what I did and say, so what are you, what are you doing to save money? Mm-hmm. What's working? And then, frankly, what's not working? And that is, is that the definition of value-based care then? Yeah. So, so we've traditionally been in this system where it's uh, volume-driven. volume, volume driven. Mm-hmm. If, if a physician can do X number of procedures, she gets paid X, X number of dollars. dollars yeah. Right. And so now we're going to you – know, and that's regardless of whether a patient comes back into the emergency room three days later because it was shoddy work. Mm-hmm. And so now we're moving to can you give quality care to these people such that they're not ending up in the ER, they're not being readmitted to the hospital, they're happy with their care, you know, they're happy with their experience overall. And so it's kind of the transition to that. So it's less – so the way physicians or hospitals get paid is based less based less on you know how many surgeries mm-hmm. or how many – procedures or you know how often they stay in the hospital and it's more focused on how healthy the patient actually is right yeah exactly with yeah with a focus on overall population health Mm -hmm. for the most part that sounds really difficult to monitor 
and yeah. yeah so like so is that kind of things you struggled with I mean, yeah yeah, yeah. So. i mean there are constant battles over what these quality metrics should be mm-hmm. you know and some people are saying well we need to measure patient patient satisfaction well how do you measure that right nobody wants to get a shot mm-hmm. so how do you get a patient to say i was a 10 out of 10 satisfied when I came into the office to be stabbed, yeah, you know, naturally you're going to come in and feel a little grumpy about being there. And sometimes there's data because I've, I've looked at some of this data, man. Yeah. I'm glad mm-hmm. I'm having you in for this podcast because like they start digging through the data mm-hmm. and then like uh, sometimes patients give scores for things that don't have really anything to do with their health or even the physician has anything to like even – um, you know, has anything to do with that? You know, and right. like, is the waiting room clean? Is, right. You know, like, was the hospital food tasty? I mean, these are things <laughs> that sometimes pop up in those kind of surveys. Absolutely. And, then, and people, you know, people who provide healthcare have real, you know, I, I, I don't really have any power what kind of food the cafeteria mm-hmm. sets up mm-hmm. or who's the chef for that day. So, right. And yeah. sometimes you run into this conundrum. We saw a couple of hospitals um, in the southeast that were running into this problem where they'd say, well, we really want to drive up patient satisfaction. But the whole point of it is to drive down cost. Um, but how are we doing that? Because to improve patient satisfaction, they want private suites for their hospital rooms mm-hmm. and bamboo you know, panels in the rooms and gourmet food and options on the menu. And that's mm-hmm. all driving up cost. Well, mm-hmm. you're driving up patient satisfaction, but at what cost? Kind oh, of, sounds you know. tough. Yeah, sounds right. Tough, yeah. And, and I guess uh, – and I should have mentioned this before, but – Everything really in this realm and with uh, accountable care organizations, which we've kind of honed in on in this discussion, centers around what's called the triple aim. Mm-hmm. So increasing the quality of healthcare, decreasing the cost of healthcare, and increasing the access to healthcare or to quality healthcare. Mm-hmm. And those are three – I mean they're, <laughs> those are three things that are often at odds or it's easy to capture two of them and the third becomes incredibly elusive. So. It's kind of this interesting trifecta that hospitals are trying to nail down. What's the biggest misconception uh, that people have about the Affordable Care Act or all the changes that are about – or the changes that are about to occur or that are occurring already in our mm. system? Yeah, I, I think the biggest misconception – the biggest problem is a lack of knowledge. Okay. Right? People just – they, they just hear it. They hear either Obamacare or you know Affordable Care Act and they just freeze up mm-hmm. because all they've heard is kind of negative peripheral talk. I would say the most common misconception would have to be just cost. It's mm-hmm. expensive and it doesn't work or mm-hmm. it has no direction. And there have been bumps along the way that haven't helped that perception, like the rollout of the online system that mm-hmm. was plagued with problems. Yes. <laughs> Certainly didn't help in the PR department. But, you know, I think if you really look into it, there are positives and negatives. And okay. even from a physician standpoint, there are positives and negatives. But the reality of the fact is – or the reality is we have it. It's mm-hmm. here. And and we kind of need to make the best of it. And as, and as it goes forward, in my opinion, we as physicians need to help shape certain portions of it mm-hmm. uh, with our expertise. And uh, that's that's kind of our role to play, I think mm-hmm. – I'm I'm a huge advocate of physicians being more involved politically and more involved in policy and things that affect our jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't ima- I can't imagine entering this field now without the background that I have. Uh, it would kind of seem like diving into a, a blind pit, not knowing mm-hmm. kind of what's ahead. I do think your expertise brings um, brings a certain a knowledge, a certain perspective. That is very valuable, not just through medical school, but residency and beyond. I agree with you. Like, Thank you. So I do know, I do know, like, didn't you have some work published last year? 
Were, I did. Yeah. yeah. What, what was that about? Let's talk about that. Let's toot your horn. <laughs> You're so. making me blush, Doctor Chen. Okay. Um, so yeah, I had the opportunity through my job to write a blog post for Health Affairs. Okay. Uh, they actually approached our firm and asked if we would write something about accountable care organizations, and we agreed. And I was actually given that opportunity to be first author on that paper on that blog post. And so we wrote for them kind of a, a year in review. Mm. Uh, it was the end of 2014-ish, almost the end of 2014. And we said, here are kind of the things that have been happening. Okay. And kind of did a summary and analysis of that. And it was on the Health Affairs blog, Health Affairs being one of the major sources for healthcare administration Pol- policy. and policy news. Okay. Right. And uh, so that was fantastic. And then mm. this year, just last month, um, found out that it was within the top 15 most read blogs on Health Affair blog. Oh, cool. So, cool. Yeah. All right. Enjoyed that. Number nine, Holding Number, Strong. Holding Strong. <laughs> so like, what's the title of it so people can look it up? Right. Yeah. So the official title of the post, it was May 30th, 2014, and it was ACO Results, What We Know So Far. Okay. Yeah. Pretty straightforward. Yeah. All right. So now you're in medical school. You're almost done with your first year. Biggest surprise about medical school. Because I know there's a perception – of like, oh, medical school is blank, and then you get here, and then, oh, it's actually blank. So, like, what's been the biggest surprise to you so far, Matt? Right. Uh, The biggest surprise so far is that the first year, the schedule is actually incredibly flexible. Mm. I found that I had a lot of time to decide what to do with. That doesn't mean that I wasn't spending all of my time studying and focusing on school, but Mm -hmm. it wasn't as though I was – Woke up at 6 a.m., went to class at 7, and was in class till 9 p.m., which was kind of my expectation, right? I would just constantly live at the HSCB. I would constantly live up at the medical school. And in reality, classes from 1 to 5, and beyond that, you kind of decide your schedule, how much you study, what you study, when you study, mm-hmm. uh, which got me into trouble a little bit at the first. And I, I took that first quiz and realized, whoa, <laughs> this schedule is nice, but I need to devote a lot more time to studying. And then the second surprise, I think, was how collaborative it was, is, mm-hmm. and how much I've gotten to know my classmates. Mm. So when I talk to people, one of the first questions people ask is, how big is your class? Whether they're in medicine or not. It's just kind of a common thing to ask. And I say 100 people, and the most common reaction is, whoa, that's a lot of people. And in my head, I think... No, not at all. Mm -hmm. That seems like such a small class. I know everyone by name. I know most people's family members or their significant others and what they plan on doing so far. And so it's been phenomenal to connect with 100 people, 102 people Mm -hmm. on that level and really collaborate with them and know, oh, Chris is an expert in immunology. I'm going to go ask him a question about this. And you know, Cindy is really organized and great at the clinical aspect. So I'm going to ask her questions about CMC. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's been really, really a surprise. Is that just happening all the time? Or is that kind of encouraged through all the small groups and the like the learning communities and all that? Yeah. So, so I would say, uh, to toot your own horn, I think admissions does a really fantastic job right. of bringing in people who hold that uh, hold that dear to them. They mm-hmm. want to connect with other people. And then beyond that, I think the curriculum facilitates it. So you've got people who want to collaborate and then they're brought into situations where they're allowed to collaborate. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a really good combination. Excellent. Well, I'm going to ask you just what your opinion is about the attendance policy because I get asked about this <laughs> a lot. Um, and I, I've heard all you know all across the spectrum. So, yeah. like, Matt, how do you feel? I mean, first of all, describe it and how do you feel about it? Right. So yeah. our, our attendance policy is such that we have required attendance. So from one to five – most days from one to five um, and then every Wednesday from eight to five, we're required to be in class. Uh, and there is attendance taken. 
And I and there's grace days. Uh, yeah, there's right, right. You're yeah. you're given grace days that you can take per month, and you mm-hmm. can get excused absences and professional days if you need to. So, I think it's not as rigid as I initially thought it was mm-hmm. coming in. Um, honestly, my opinion is a little skewed because I would be here anyway. Mm-hmm. I'm, I I learn from lectures. I do well in lectures and taking notes. So I'm a little biased in that I think, well, even if it wasn't there, I'd be here every day. Um, but yeah, I think the biggest thing that it's done is bring us all together. We see all 102 of our classmates every single day for four hours a day, mm-hmm. with the exception of somebody who takes a grace day or does this and that. Mm-hmm. So I, I like it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's a certain part that gets a little old with when attendance is being taken yeah. and you're like, Ugh, you feel like you're back in yeah, high am I in, school. Am I in high school again? Yeah. I'm not trying to run rogue. Mm-hmm. So there's a little bit of that that happens, but for the most part, it, okay. and you get into a flow where it doesn't bother you, mm-hmm. you know, you have to be there. And so mm-hmm. you're there. Yeah. I know on a, on a national level, there's something that's talked about, mm-hmm. um, you know, how, you know, there are some medical schools that are moving to a model where they're putting more and more stuff online mm-hmm. and they don't require the students to come to class. Um, and then there's our more our model that you know we still put the we still put the lectures that are podcasted, right. but like we expect people to be there for you know the discussion, the small groups, the camaraderie, the, mm-hmm. like the learning that takes place between students. And I, you know I think it's I think we have a really good model, but I do recognize that for some people it's not like the most popular. And I'm sure you've heard the same grumblings from right. some, from some of your classmates. So. Right, right. So it's it's something that we talk about. Yeah, yeah. and I think there's a cer- there's a certain aspect of paying your dues. Mm-hmm. Right. There's a certain aspect of getting used to a schedule, getting used to because during third and fourth year, you yeah. Right. When they tell you to be there, you, you are there. there. Yeah. <laughs> so there's some of that getting used to, and mm-hmm. you know, I think sometimes our generation, and not to wax old and philosophical, but <laughs> some of the these darn millennials, um, it's kind of like, these well, kids. I want to these kids these days. They just want to do their own thing, right? Uh-huh. We we want to do whatever we want to do when we want to do it. We're used to having technology at our fingertips and using it for everything, and. And medicine still is a very tried and true practice. It's a very, um, it's very much an apprenticeship. You very much come up through the ranks and you learn from your elders Mm -hmm. and you learn from having to do things and you learn from responsibility. So I think in that regard, the attendance policy is just preparing you for everything that's to come for Mm -hmm. the next 10 years and beyond. (laughs) I like, that's a great perspective, man. I like that. So, well, let's, let's move on. So, you know, you you have like, uh, you know, you talked about how you have a lot of flexibility in your schedule. What Mm -hmm. are some of the... Uh, what are some of the causes or interests that you're engaged in? I mean, what are, what kind of things are you doing during your first year? Because I know there's a lot mm-hmm. of different interest groups. There's a lot of different activities. There's a lot of different ways for the med students to apply themselves ab- above and beyond the classroom. Yeah, certainly. So interest groups are phenomenal. It's a good opportunity to dive into a specialty that you think you might be interested in without without committing wholeheartedly something to it. You can show up to a meeting and you can hear from a physician who wants to talk about their specialty. So I've done a lot of that. The interest groups will host a lot of lunches. Mm-hmm. Uh, to all of you incoming students, don't plan on buying you lunch for maybe your first two months in medical school. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Because you will have lunch from every interest group ever. Uh, so that's a great way to – great use of time. Um, I also work a lot with the administration. Personally, I work a lot with the administration and the curriculum committee. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in going into academic medicine. I'm interested in hospital administration. And so I use some of my time to explore those things and help out with uh, with those different committees. Um, and then there's a lot of flexibility to kind of explore what you want to explore. So a classmate of mine, Jesse Barlow, and I – 
um, formed an outreach team to reach out to LGBT youth who are interested in medicine. Um, I worked with another one of my classmates, and we started an interest group that deals with obesity and diabetes. Mm. So there are constantly new things starting and the availability to start what you're interested in, Mm -hmm. as well as diving into things that already exist that you're Mm -hmm. interested in. Do you feel being a medical student gives you a certain level of like access? I mean, it's easier to kind of start these groups since you're already in medical school and you know, people just kind of give you the benefit of the doubt. Do you see what I'm saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that especially applies to things like volunteering in clinics. Mm -hmm. Um, the fourth street clinic is such an incredible resource to have. I volunteer down there with the ophthalmology clinic and, uh, just right away, right. We, we stepped in and like, no one knew we were first years. It was honestly, I remember going with a couple of my classmates. It was like our second week of medical school. And they said, do you know how to do a, an ophthalmology exam? And we just stared at them and they said, great, we'll teach you. And then you go do 10 of them. So that was great. And then in regards to shadowing too, you, you email a physician and within, you know, two days he or she will get back to you and say, great, come on in. Mm -hmm. Happy to have you. Uh, it gives you a lot of access. It's kind of the magic access badge. (laughs) How did you get interested in those areas? I mean, what drew you to those different like fields you're kind of going towards like helping youth out and reach the LGBT community? Where where did that come from? Yeah. I'm kind of all over the place, huh? (laughs) Um, I, I have a, a passion for disparities in healthcare, okay. and I think there are to this day. I think there exist disparity disparities in healthcare, certainly for the homeless community, mm. which is what got me started at Fourth Street Clinic. And actually, there are still there are still disparities within the LGBT community in healthcare, and I wanted to be able to address those, and I wanted to be able to bring people and youth who are interested in that and get them involved with the medical school. Okay. Um, both, both from the end that, you know, receiving good health care, but also becoming health care providers and providing good health care, mm-hmm. providing that perspective. Wow. Interesting. Well, Matt, I mean, it sounds like you're making a huge difference. So um, let's kind of wrap it up. Like, uh, what does the future hold for you? I mean, I'm not going to hold you to this, but like, like <laughs> what field are you interested in? What, 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 where, where is your path headed? Yeah, so you yeah. mentioned administration yes. and medical education. So, yes. I mean, like beyond that, what kind of doctor do you want to be? Yeah. So be, <laughs> beyond that, reaching, reaching into, the, into the hat, you know, it's funny because it changes weekly almost depending on who you hear from and what you see. But I think three things have really risen to the top for me for three different reasons, and they're they're three very different areas. So the first would be interventional radiology. I think the technology is fantastic, very interesting. But then I also like that beyond diagnostic radiology, you have the opportunity to connect with patients and follow them. If you did something like interventional oncology, Mm -hmm. you're following the same patients in clinic through six, seven-plus years. And I really enjoy that. I enjoy connections with patients. Um, the second would be OBGYN. Hmm. Um, simply, I, I'm very interested in women's health. I think it's a really important thing. And again, you make incredible relationships with your patients. Mm-hmm. No one connects with a doctor the way that a woman connects with her OBGYN. Mm-hmm. Uh, and get to follow them throughout time too. And then the third is oncology. And that may be because we just finished our unit called Molecule Cells and Cancer mm-hmm. and heard from some incredible physicians and, as well as some patients mm-hmm. who came in and presented to our class. But again, the connection with people over time, helping people through an illness, helping people longitudinally through a hard time, I think is is something that interests me and okay. is a huge focus for me. Wow. Well, Matt, I wish you the very best. I hope uh, I hope you know it continues to go well. I appreciate you coming in. I Thank think, you. Uh, Thanks for having me. I'll probably working for you one day. <laughs> <laughs> I don't so. know about that. <laughs> right. but thanks, Matt. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with Dr. Benjamin Chan, the ultimate resource to help you on your journey to and through medical school. A production of the Scope Health Sciences Radio, online at thescoperadio.com.